listening to Myself with Others. I'm your host, Adam Schatz, and my guest on this episode is the writer James Lasden. Born in 1958 in London, James has lived in the United States since the mid-1980s. He is the author of four widely praised novels and four collections of short stories, as well as several books of poetry and a now classic memoir of being harassed by an online stalker. The Guardian has described him as one of the most incisive investigators of the human heart writing in English today. It's a judgment I share. In fact, I would go further because his investigations of the human heart are also explorations of the human condition in the age of social media, precariousness, and fear. Thank you, James, for joining me on Myself with Others. Well, thank you, Adam. A little strange for us to be talking via Zoom in a more or less formal interview since we see each other often and speak frequently. Very strange. <laughs> we'll get used to it, though, I hope. <laughs> You've worked in a variety of literary forms in poetry, memoir, the short story, the novel, even the thriller. You've also written screenplays. But whatever form you're working in, I think of your writing as exploring how we navigate and rationalize discrepancies uh, between who we are and who we think we are, how we grapple with desires, dark impulses, unpleasant feelings we'd rather not own up to, and increasingly how we respond to threats against privacy, against our names and our reputations in the internet age. I always have this sense that things can and, and often do fall apart, and that when they don't, it's by some kind of grace that won't last, a, a temporary reprieve of sorts. Is that a fair uh, appraisal? That sounds very fair and very true in the sense of it describes what interests me. Um, I mean, I don't know if I've ever, if I've got very far in defining any of those things or answering any of those questions. The one thing I would say is that the internet was a sort of completely futurist, I mean, didn't exist when I started writing. And all the kind of pressures and ways in which it kind of poses all those same questions in a new in a new way were they sort of fed into my preoccupations, I suppose, in a, in a curious way. Yeah. A mutual friend of ours, uh, Michael Greenberg, has often described you to me as a master of dread, and and there is a pervasive and ominous mood of psychic fear, sometimes verging on paranoia in your writing. I'm wondering, do you recognize yourself in Michael's description? I do. I mean, I, I might call it anxiety, but anxiety is just like dread a couple of notches down. And it sort of vacillates and often approaches dread. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it interests me in a kind of very sort of animal way in the sense of that's, that's <laughs> I don't quite know why, but that's my state of mind, sort of vague, pervasive anxieties of one kind or another are very familiar to me. And so I'm, I'm drawn to explore that state and to dramatize it and to make stories that produce, I guess, somewhat cathartic versions of it for my own purposes. I remember feeling that I'd stepped into one of your books midway through the pandemic. I was visiting you at your home in, in the woods outside of Woodstock you and I were planning to make lamb for dinner and you went to the butcher. And when you got back, you seemed very distressed because the meat you'd been given turned out to be pork. And I suggested that you go back to the butcher or at least make a complaint later. But you said there was no way you were gonna do this. The people at that store were thugs, they might be dangerous and that they might even figure out where you lived and that they could show up and even do something violent. Now, when you first told me this, James, I thought you were joking. And then I realized you weren't. Uh, <laughs> well, that sounds like uh, uh, the words of a complete lunatic <laughs> read back to me like that. I think it might be a very slight exaggeration of my desire not to pursue that in any way. I'd had like a sense of the people in that store as being a, a little bit thuggish in a way. And I'm not really very paranoid, but I've had a few kind of brushes with, I've even had a situation very like that butcher situation that, that made a very strong impression on me when I bought some 
what I thought was some beautiful looking uh, salami. And it turned out that while I was sort of looking away, the butcher had substituted all these kind of cruddy ends of old sausage and stuff. And when I got to my picnic, uh, that was what I opened it up on. And I was, and it for some reason made a deep impression on me. I wasn't afraid that the guy was going to come after me, but I think it also had to do with this. This is where I live. And I do feel like comfortable here in a way that I haven't felt in many places that I've lived. And I suppose I'm protective about that comfort and don't want to jeopardize it. And maybe that makes me exaggeratedly sort of watchful about situations like this on, on the kind of home front. You know, you might just describe a little bit, you know, where you live. Like right now, I see that you are, you're sitting in your basement, your kind of man cave where you write and there's a ping pong table behind you and and the the wall is lined uh, with books. There's not a great deal of light, but you live in this rather bucolic area in the woods. Yeah, I've lived here on and off from like the late, from the 90s, the mid 90s, actually. And um, at a certain point, we had our first child, we sort of had to decide whether we wanted to kind of commit to living here or be more in New York. And we committed to living here and raised our two children here up in Woodstock. And, and we're in the mountains. We're outside town. It's very, it's quite wild, a lot of animals, a lot of wonderful birds. And yeah, I like being in nature. In fact, the house that we bought, we after I mean, at some point we moved, we picked up the house and moved it into a meadow, which, yeah, it's rather dark down here in the basement, but the rest of the house is light. And as, and as I recall, you, you physically moved the house without having to take anything out of it. We did. We were told by the house movers we wouldn't have to take anything out and that we could put a glass of water on the floor and it wouldn't spill. And our two children who were very young then rode in the house as it was moved up the hill to this meadow with a glass of water on the floor, which duly remained intact. It was extraordinary. And, and the next morning, we were kind of looking out of the same windows onto radically different views. It was a very strange, wonderful experience. For whatever reason, I've ended up working down in the basement away from the views away from the light, but it works for me. And I mean, although you're not particularly involved in the wildlife in that area, your wife is. Every morning you wake up, and you see these wild turkeys arriving at your home. Wild turkey. Yes, my wife uh, is very keen on the birds, and she feeds them on a quite a scale. And we have beautiful birds as a result that come every morning. And a lot of other animals come for the either to try to catch the birds, like the bobcats come, and the foxes, and the, the bear comes to try and eat the sea. So there's a lot of wildlife that sort of parades through. It's it's endlessly fascinating. And for me, you're right, I'm not that involved. I don't spend a lot of time doing that. I mean, feeding the birds or stuff like that, but I appreciate it. I, I am interested in in it from a writing point of view, the kind of the environment here. And I have written about that and more, more in my poetry than, than my fiction. But it also enriches your fiction. I mean, there are, I mean, there are certainly images of it in your fiction. Definitely. I mean, I think my novel, The Fall Guy, began in my mind as just I wanted to write about the landscape here on a certain at certain times of year. I really wanted to capture the lovely kind of summer beauty of, of this particular spot. I set a rather kind of dark human story against it, but I was very conscious of the. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that later. I mean, in that regard, it, it reminds me actually a bit of a film that you and I both admired recently, The Swimming Pool. Right, yes. French film from the late 60s, which is also in a very beautiful environment, but a, a rather dark story. Yeah, great film. Um, you know, the, the critic Laura Kipnis writes that uh, a sly Freudianism sluices through Lasden's work. People pride themselves on virtue, but end up mysteriously sullied in ways that mirror their desires and ambivalences. Now, to, uh, this strikes me as a, a perceptive observation, but at the same time, I think it misses something, which is the compassion that you have for your characters. However much they end up sullying themselves, however much they screw up uh, morally, you do seem to care for them. Even Charlie, the protagonist of The Fall Guy, who ends up committing murder. I don't like books where it's apparent that the author has disdain for their characters. And I might have, in some very early stories, written in a more satirical vein where I was kind of 
either laughing at the expense of them. But I, I found out fairly quickly that wasn't the, who I was as a writer. I mean, there are people who do that incredibly well, and I, I guess I do admire really good satire, but it's just not me. And I, I'm more interested in the points at which I can see myself in these characters and I can see even the really bad things they do. I, I sort of need to be able to feel my where can I find that impulse in myself in order to be able to write them. I mean, I tend to avoid kind of imposing a moral a a sort of framework of moral judgment over my characters and they judge each other, but which today feels quite subversive, actually, or rather transgressive of contemporary norms around fiction writing. Maybe, when yeah. writers are suddenly expected to have moral viewpoints about their characters, their characters' politics, and so on. Yeah. You know, it seems to me there's also something very sensuous in your writing, especially when you're describing sex or landscape or, or music. In fact, it's, it's in music that the writing comes alive, I think, with what Stendhal calls the promesse de bonheur, the, the, the promise of happiness. It's a fleeting promise like music which, you know, once performed is gone. And um, in the story of the siege, Schubert's wanderer fantasy plays a very significant role. You don't mention it by name, but it's, it's very present in that story and plays in a sense in a role in the plot, which is a plot of an unexpected seduction, even a, a love affair. So in the siege, a man named Mr. Kinski is practicing the piece in his house. And in the floor below him, his renter, a woman exiled from a dictatorship, her name is Marietta, is listening. And as she listens, her feelings about him begin to shift. I wonder if you might read a bit from the story. Yeah, of course. It began with a childish melody, a simple nursery tune of no particular distinction. The tune was played again and again but at each repetition, a new element was added to the accompanying harmonies, deepening and darkening its resonance, so that it was gradually transformed from its bland cheerfulness into something haunting and disturbing, in the way that a child's toy might be if you were to see it in a series of successively gloomier backgrounds, beginning with a nursery and ending with a graveyard. Then, when it had reached its graveyard phase, the tune was abandoned and the piece burst into the most voluptuous, ecstatic progression of pounding bass notes and dazzling runs cascading down from higher and higher. Why this piece, James, the Schubert Wanderer fantasy? I mean, I was listening to it a lot at the time. I think it was one of the ingredients of the story, one of the elements, I suppose, of the story. It was I discovered this piano pieces of Schubert, and I was listening to them obsessively for a period when I was also involved in a very complicated emotional, intense emotional situation. And it became kind of the music of that phase, that experience. I just, it, it lodged itself in my mind and I, I really knew it. I got to know it very, very well. I sort of began, I think, to understand how it, how it worked, how it had been put together a little bit. I mean, I'm not any kind of musicologist, but I felt that I understood it in some way and that I, I could use it in this story as a way of talking about the emotions, a way of getting the emotions onto the page as she listens and she becomes steadily kind of mesmerized and it casts its spell over her. Because, because initially she's very suspicious 
of this man. Very suspicious, and with you know, and she's there as a kind of pretty destitute. Um, she's a refugee. She's a refugee, and she's she's working for him basically as a cleaner. She sort of does his just the housework in exchange for rent. The story sort of is about how these two people, very from very different kind of places in life, become entangled with each other. Bertolucci eventually turns into a film. Yes. Besieged. Yes, he didn't use that music though. He had his own music uh, written for it. I did try to persuade him, but he was not that interested. When I read a story like The Siege, I, I find myself thinking of the musical scenes in Proust or of uh, Tolstoy's Kreutzer Sonata, although Tolstoy's stories, uh, his novella is a much crueler work. There's this strong sense of the sublime, of the intensity, and even the emotional danger that music can stir. In fact, when I read you, James, I don't really think of you as being a, a British, much less an American writer. To me, you're more of a European writer who happens to write in English with more affinities with Chekhov and, and Tolstoy, or, or indeed with Kafka, especially in your novel, The Horned Man, uh, than with your British and American peers. The, the Russians and the Central Europeans strike me as being particularly important as influences. Am I, am I right about that? You know, I studied English literature, a very kind of traditional English literature course where we just did the canon from Anglo-Saxon to sort of T.S. Eliot. And I really got a lot out of that, particularly studying Shakespeare in depth. I mean, I, I do, I think the English language is the kind of the best thing that I have to, you know, the thing I'm most grateful for being able to work with, you know, as a, just as a kind of birthright. But in terms of what came to interest me more in time, uh, it was yeah, Russian, Russian writers, especially European. Yes, I, I, I do feel more kind of drawn to that tradition. Uh, if that's what it even is. I mean, there are many traditions within it, but, uh, but um, those writers that you mentioned are all very, very, probably more important to me than most British or American writers. I mean, one American writer you've, you've expressed admiration for is Saul Bellow. And Saul Bellow, of course, is a writer much admired by writers like Martin Amis and Ian McEwan and Hanif Qureshi, uh, James Wood. But I don't sense in your work the kind of, the kind of romance with America and its culture and its energy that I find in the work of other British writers. And I'm wondering, do you think it's because you've actually lived there for most of your adult life? Or do you think it's a question of temperament? Hmm. I mean, I'm, I, there, there are aspects of America that, that I do find very kind of romantically engaging. And I, in my 20s, I didn't think much about America. I didn't plan to go there. I didn't sort of immerse myself in American fiction. I mean, I really liked Saul Bellow's novels, but that was about it. And I liked Lowell's poetry and Sylvia Plath's poetry. And those were very, those three writers were extremely important to me, but they, but not really in their Americanness, just in their way of using language and their way of looking at the world, not really in the content in Bellow's case. It wasn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't really respond to. It wasn't, it wasn't Bellow's Chicago. It was really the sentences. Yeah. 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 So it's just the way his, the, the, the habits of mind, the way he would kind of look at a street or a room or, you know, a human face. Uh, to me, that was just so exciting that you could do things in words that brought physical reality and sensory reality to the page with such kind of intelligence, such kind of specificity and such inventiveness. So that made a big impression on me. I was never interested in particularly in his political views. I probably should have been more. I mean, I, you know, looking back, I see I tolerated a lot of stuff that is pretty, pretty awful, really. Um, but somehow, you know, that's not how we, I read in those days. I didn't have that kind of yeah, I mean, I think people like Martin Amos and Ian McEwan had, had, were looking at America. I mean, they were looking at Roth, they were looking at Updike, they were looking at Bellow, and they were aspiring to be that kind, you know, to write like that, to be like, that was their model of, a, of what a great writer was. It wasn't particularly for me. I mean, I didn't have anything particularly against them, but I, it just didn't, wasn't where I was looking. You, you had a very British childhood and a family that both was and wasn't particularly British. Your, your father, Dennis Lasden, extremely prominent architect, designed the Royal National Theatre on London's South Bank of the Thames. But your parents were Jews, not just Jews, but Jews who'd converted to the Anglican Church. 
Yeah, it was all very confused and confusing. And I think they were very confused. I mean, they'd both grown up in completely uh, assimilated households, but not converted. What happened was, I think, when when they and they had children at that time in the late 50s, it was kind of, in their world, you know, you brought your children up in a faith of one kind or another. So they felt that they had to decide what they were. So they explored what it would be to become a practicing Jews. And it didn't, you know, that, 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 if you haven't grown up with, with Jewish practice and culture, stepping into it in adulthood, I can see why they didn't, it didn't particularly draw them. But then they got, they, they looked into Christianity. I mean, they got, they met this charismatic Protestant nun who kind of got them to convert. It was it's something that I have very mixed feelings about. And I think they came to slightly regret it. My father just dropped it pretty quickly and always identified publicly as a Jew. And what about you as a child? Were you a member of the church yourself? We used to go for a period to Sunday church in this village church where we had a weekend cottage. And it was pretty excruciating in a way because we, I mean, physically, we just do not look like your average Anglo-Saxon family outing. So there were a lot of kind of staring. And then after my father stopped and my siblings and I all stopped, my mother continued going for a while. And for her, it was, and she's, She's actually the most Semitic looking of us all. And for her, it was a kind of strange ordeal. And eventually it became too much for her, but she was quite serious about Christianity. Uh, but then I think she just sort of felt, I think I, I possibly I made her feel that she had done a you know, questionable thing. And I, and I, I regret doing that, you know, I mean, people should be allowed to do whatever they want. Um, but the result of it all was a, was a degree of confusion about ourselves at the level of what we now think of as identity. I mean, we were given a formula, which was to say when people asked, as they often did in England, that we were Jewish by race and Christian by religion. And that was that was what we would trot out when people would say, you know, who, what are you? And looking back, I mean, it just seems even more painful than it probably felt at the time. Sort of makes me think of Philip Roth's novel, The Counterlife, which is uh, partly an account of the experience that he had as an American Jew in Britain. Uh, he paints a very bleak portrait of British anti-Semitism. I wonder, do, do you find it exaggerated or lacking in subtlety, or do you think he captures something about what it is to be a Jew in Britain, or what it was? Well, I think he was writing, I mean, he, his world in England was somewhat overlapped with my parents' world, because my father had, had been quite close to Claire Bloom at one time, so they socialized with, with him. And I imagine that he was thinking of that world a little bit in that book. And I, I haven't read it for a long time. I remember when I read it, I thought, yeah, there's some truth in this. It's not, it is a bit kind of broad. And he doesn't quite get how it operates in English society. But I don't know if I could even say it's very subtle, or it was in those days in that class, to 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 give a kind of novel for a really good novelistic account of it you'd have to be Proust I think to really get it I mean it's so subtle and you need a lot of characters kind of connecting with each other and within that kind of cloud of characters you would feel this little toxic bloom somewhere uh, uh, he doesn't and I certainly don't have have the ability to capture that I don't think but you know it's there were definitely things he gets very 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 accurately, I think, in that book. I mean, your father was a, was a very moody man, you've told me, um, possibly manic depressive. Uh, what, what kind of relationship did you have with him? Very close. And very, I loved him dearly, and, and we always got on extremely well. He had complicated feelings about sort of writers, intellectuals, he felt that he saw himself as a, you know, as an artist. I mean, he was an architect, but he saw himself basically as an artist who used architecture as his medium and a visual artist working in a country that didn't really get visual art. You know, they always wanted to verbalize it, always wanted to hear things put into words before they could really kind of get their heads around them. And he felt more connected with the pure visual cultures of of a more European tradition. And so he felt somewhat at odds with kind of British intellectual life. 
Did he know R.B. Katai? They crossed paths. He, um, I don't think they were friends, but they, they were, he, that was a name that would come up among the kind of art, artistic world that they mixed with. But I think when he saw that I was going to become like a, a, a writer, someone for whom the words were, were going to be what, it, you know, what I was going to pursue, I became kind of useful to him as someone who would point him to texts and would work with him on, I mean, he actually wrote extremely well. I, th I always thought he was a very good writer, but he didn't trust himself or he, he, he was wary of all that sort of thing. So he was a bit, he was a rather, he was a little bit embattled. Mm. And I mean, partly because he was doing these high modernist buildings in a culture that really didn't like modernism, but had kind of grudgingly sort of acknowledged that you couldn't really do anything else with these big institutional buildings that he was doing. You couldn't really do kind of pastiche English vernacular architecture, although some people were trying. And he was an absolutely uncompromising modernist. He was known as a brutalist, wasn't he? Well, he rejected that. I mean, that's a label that has come gone through so many kind of phases of popularity and unpopularity it was a it was a dirty word at one time now it's very fashionable and and he is grouped with the brutalist but he never saw himself as part of that crowd and he didn't like being called that and he rejected the term but i know that most architectural critics writing about him now do call him that so i don't know if you, who gets to, to kind of decide about these things but what did your mother do she had trained as an artist. She'd gone to art school. She did figure drawing, fashion drawing, worked for Marks and Spencer for a while. And she was a very good, quick sketch. She could capture. But she, after she married my, my father, I mean, she was a lot younger than he was. Um, she she worked for a bit in his office, did some of the interiors. She she chose like the carpets and things for the National Theatre and, and, you know, did, did, did some of those quite significant decisions she made. And then she started writing these books of social history. She wrote about Victorian interiors and Victorian attitudes to children and stuff. She wrote, and, and she wrote a very good book about parks, a kind of history of the English mm. park. But it was, drawing was what really gave her pleasure, but she would never quite allow herself to pursue that. And I think she felt her gift was a very kind of a traditional one. And being married to my father, who was a kind of this this modernist who really didn't like figurative art, and it was hard for her, I think, to find space to to be herself as a as a as an artist. But I wish she, it would have given her a lot more pleasure than writing the books did. I mean, she did a good job with the books, but it it wasn't fun for her. Was it difficult for you at all to grow up as the son of? an architect who was as well known, as powerful and influential as your father was? Did, did you feel any kind of, you know, anxiety of influence, even though your interests were drawn more to poetry and to the novel rather than to architecture? I mean, most, mostly not. Mostly what I felt was, was encouragement and that I had a great model for what it was to be an artist or a creative person. And he, I, I would certainly not think of him as powerful in any way. I, I mean, I guess that wasn't sort of part of who he was. He was very, he was always struggling and, and wrestling. And if it wasn't with other people, with politicians, or I mean, because he was doing this very public work, there were always a lot of political considerations, a lot of financial consider. I mean, there was always battles to be fought on every front. And then there were the design battles. And so every building was a series of battles. And, and that I may have kind of internalized that as a way of working because I tend to get very embattled. But in, in fact, you know. But your battles tend to be more with yourself. Well, yeah, because, I mean, nobody could care less about the poem you're writing. You know, it's not like a politician is going to call you up and say, I'm afraid we can't have that line. You know, it's <laughs> but somehow I've. I do sort of replicate some of the dramas. I, I've noticed that in myself. When did you acquire this passion for reading and for writing? When, when did that happen? It's fairly early on, like in my early teens, I found the, the sort of magic of language very enticing. And, that, and there were certain stories, certain books that I really enjoyed reading, and I read them over and over. And there were not very many of them. I was not a prolific reader as a kid or as a teenager at all. In fact, I think I probably read less than most people, but I read the same books over and over and over. What were they? 
I mean, there are all kinds of junk as well. I mean, I've read the Tintin books over and over and over. I also, I read a lot of folklore and myth and um, fairy tales and folk tales. And actually, I think I learned an enormous amount from those. And then there was a little book I had called Stories for Boys, which I, which just were these, I don't even know if they were any good, but I can remember most of them very well. Whatever I was given to read by my teachers, I read dutifully and with great pleasure. And I loved doing the kind of close analysis that was the way English was taught. So we would look at, you know, a novel or we would look at a Shakespeare play and we would go through it line by line and, and follow the development of the imagery and see how the characters kind of emerged out of words. And to me, that was just very beguiling. You had an English and music teacher named Mr. Monk, who was one of England's known makers of medieval instruments. He also played a a cleric in Ken Russell's film, The Devils. I gather it was through him that you developed a taste for the Middle Ages and for Gothic architecture. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. This was a known fact. Um, yeah, Mr. Monk, he was an extraordinary guy. He he taught English and music. Yeah, he taught me, he taught grammar in a very, I guess it would have been a very old fashioned way. And we did these grammatical exercises, which I loved, but which have given me, I think, a slightly exaggerated uh, regard for syntactical and grammatical correctness in my own writing, which sometimes I find a bit of a burden. But but he also was this maker of medieval instruments. He had these wonderful instruments all over his house, these which he had made, these serpents, uh, these cornets, and he taught me to play some of them. Yeah, and he, and he also taught medieval history. And I did my, my sort of A-level my in, in medieval history at the school. That, for me, was a very potent source of just kind of dreamy fantasy was thinking about being some sort of middle-aged not middle-aged but of the middle ages uh wandering i mean i think that's why i went through a very intense phase of reading herman hess uh because he has these sort of medieval fantasies like Nazis and goldman about which which is sort of proto-hippie novels really well siddhartha was certainly read by oh yeah well the hippies loved him yeah um yeah it's true uh so and i i was into all of that in New York in 1986, you were in your late 20s. Was it your intention to stay or was it simply, a, was it a simple twist of fate, as Dylan would say, uh, that you met your wife here and had a family? Right, sort of twist of fate. I mean, I had never, I'd never wanted to go to America particularly. I mean, I had not wanted to, but it came out of the blue, the offer. I was offered these teaching jobs. You know, I had no reason not to go. I, I wasn't that thrilled about the life I was leading in London. And it seemed like it would be fun and something new. So, and I went thinking I was going for one semester, which is all I was being offered. But very soon after I arrived in New York, I just became infatuated with it. I just loved it so much. Um, and I met my, the, the, my, my now wife quite early on. And I just made it my business to do whatever I needed to do to stay. I was very lucky, incredibly lucky. I mean, when I look back and think how lucky, I mean, I took it all for granted as one does at that age. But 
looking back, it just seems beyond lucky to have had those opportunities just offered. Not long after you got to New York, you were walking down a quiet street in the West Village when you heard a woman's voice calling, sir, sir, excuse me, from a window at the top of her townhouse. Uh, the door, she said the door was stuck, that she was trapped inside. Uh, she asked you to come help her to get it open. And so you climbed up the staircase. At the same time, you're afraid that you're being set up to be mugged or that you might be framed for breaking and entering and then you'd be blackmailed. But there was nothing untoward about it, just this attractive, dark-haired woman. And now you felt that you were a source of menace and she looked nervous. And so you left as soon as possible, even though she offered you coffee. You ended up writing a story about this. In the story, it's the, the woman has set up the situation as if she were a character out of, I don't know, a Schnitzler story or, or, a Kub or Kubrick's adaptation of Schnitzler. That was an event that had sort of became a rather significantly haunting event in my life uh, for various reasons. Uh, it, it happened very much as I wrote it, as you just relayed it. I mean, I had to hurl myself at her door and practically break it down to get in. And that was when I sort of really felt that I had crossed over from being a, a gallant knight into being sort of a kind of an intruder. I knew it was one of those events that happened to, you know, any writer that happens to is going to think, well, what do I do with this? I knew I wanted to write about it, but it, I just could not think how to do it for years and years and years. And it, it was about 20 years later that I actually wrote the story, The Woman in the Window, that, that is based on that. That story then became part of the obsessions of my stalker who thought that it was about her. She thought that I had modeled the woman in the window on her, which I hadn't in any conscious way. But one of the things I kind of explore in my memoir of being stalked was, you know, what, what was going on at the unconscious level that might have fed into this crazy relation, well, not relationship, but this crazy experience um, of being the object of someone else's very malign sort of a, a infatuation. Right, which we'll talk about. It's a, it's a marvelous story. And the title reminds me, of course, of, of the Fritz Lang film. Woman in the Window, right, right. Woman in the Window. And, you know, you're very much a cinephile. We watched lots of films together. Since the late 90s, you've had a relationship to the cinema. You, you, you worked with the director, uh, Jonathan Nossiter. We've mentioned that Bertolucci adapted uh, The Siege into his film uh, Besieged. What as a writer did you get from your collaborations in the film world? Do you think that your writing changed in any way as you became drawn into that world? Definitely, definitely. Uh, I learned a huge amount. I became very intolerant of slowness in my own work and other people's work, and maybe in, in bad ways as well as good, but it really sped me up. It taught me, forced me to sort of learn how to tell stories through dialogue and just minimal scene setting. It made me much more interested in those things. Before that, I kind of felt that I wasn't very good at dialogue and that I only used it when I felt I had to. And it's not like I felt I became good at it, but I, I it, it started interesting me more and more. And it made me want to be more propulsive as a writer to get things moving very quickly. I mean, there's a thing about, screenwriting, which you learn early on, is that it, there's a relationship between, it's a very crude thing, but it's a relationship between like words and money, because every page is a certain percentage of the, the film's budget. And you, you start developing this very kind of crude sense that, well, you know, the longer this character is talking for, the more expensive it's getting, or, or the more, you, you know... Time is money. Time is money. Time is money, which, you know, can be a kind of useful thing to have in your mind when you're writing in fiction as well. The, the downside of it, and you see this in a lot of fiction, is that it can have the effect of turning a novel into something that reads like it's just a treatment for a screen, for a movie, and that really all the writer is interested in is selling the movie rights, which may very well be the case with a lot of books. But it can also just kind of, I don't, I mean, I, I, I love thrillers, I love uh, genre movies, and I think it just made me more open to different things, more open to, it also made me want to get involved in actual film and, and regret that I hadn't gone to film school uh, in some ways. 
I wasn't very interested in cinema before before I started working in it. You know, another jolt, creative jolt for you came from a, a most unpleasant experience that you, you've alluded to. You, you had been teaching creative writing since you came to the States and mostly at Columbia in the New School. And in, I think around 2006, you had a student whom in your memoir you call uh, Nasreen, a young woman of Iranian descent. At first, she seemed rather promising. A platonic sort of flirtation developed between the two of you, but it quickly turned uh, pear-shaped. Uh, in some ways, reprising themes in your novel, The Horn Man, for the next five years, she engaged in a relentless campaign of online harassment and character assassination, which I think she described as a kind of verbal terrorism and you described as asymmetric warfare. And it hasn't really ended. I mean, I see that she recently described your supporters as satanic. Now, a, a remarkable memoir uh, emerged from this experience called Give Me Everything You Have. I'm guessing this is a book that you wish you hadn't had to write. I'm glad that I did write it in the sense that it helped me in all kinds of ways. And it's a book that I feel good about. But but the experience was, I mean, it was just overwhelming. And it went on for so long. And it was um, so incomprehensible. It, it, it There was nothing anybody could do about it. That was the strangest thing. I mean, I, the police, I wasn't... Not even the FBI. Not even but... the FBI. And, and it turned out that she was doing this with, she was stalking, well, cyber stalking several people at once. Uh, I was one of many. I think I was the main one at that time. But we all kind of found each other through this book, uh, which was kind of helpful. So, um, and in fact, most of the other people were women. But yeah, it was the first and so far, I think the only time in my life where I've, I've felt really like I encountered something as dark as all the objects of my kind of imaginary dread might have, might have suggested were out there, but that I'd never actually encountered before. There's a line in the book that I think you, there's a line that you cite and that you told uh, to Nasserine. It's something I, it's a line that, that really stood out for me. George Eliot, uh, the last thing we learn is our effect on other people. I mean, clearly, you had a very profound effect on, on her. And, and one has the sense that even as she accused you of things, of misdeeds of which you were innocent, still that had an impact, still that creates some feeling of guilt. What did I do to deserve this? Yeah. I mean, you go through life thinking people see you more or less as you see yourself. And an experience like this teaches you something that's probably generally true, universally true, which is that you are not perceived the way you perceive yourself. There are all kinds of ways in which you are perceived. And some of them are quite sort of violently contradictory to the way you perceive yourself. That actually, you know, that was interesting from the from a writerly point of view, because it opens up a mystery, a new avenue of mystery about the whole question of of identity, which is mysterious enough as it is anyway. And self-knowledge. And self-knowledge, yeah, and how you come to self-knowledge, and how you come to kind of recognize who you are, you know, to know yourself. And in a way, it's my sense that this horrible experience also led you to what would become a really important theme in your work, namely the question of one's name, the question of reputation, and how reputation can be can be ruined in an instant. Yeah. I had always had a kind of interest in, in that question. So it was just a kind of academic interest. I loved stories of duels and stuff like that. I, and the whole phenomenon of dueling fascinated me, the fact that people would fight to the death over these. You're talking about the culture of honor in the Middle Ages. Yes, yeah, so all the way through to the 19th century and even into the early 20th century. Um, in Vienna in the 19th century, I mean, you, people would fight a duel over, you know, somebody swipes your chair in a club. Sometimes somebody would get killed. So I mean, it always interested me. But you were disarmed. You you didn't you didn't you weren't you weren't able to take up arms to uh, oppose this insult. Exactly. And this defamation. Exactly. I could do nothing. I, I you know I was defamed online, and there just was nothing I could do about it. But it made me very conscious of this aspect of one's identity that is in the hands of other people, which is one's reputation, which seems like a very archaic concept. But I think the internet revived it in a, in a way and brought it back into the mainstream of the culture uh, in a way that had seemed highly unlikely that it would ever be important again in the way that it had been to a Victorian governess or something like that. But suddenly 
it, it is important again. It is a major, it's an industry now, the protecting of reputation and the defending of, rep, I mean, there are companies that have named for it. And I had a stake in that. I, I, I was, you know, intimately touched by the phenomenon. Right. You write it as, that at a certain point in the ascendancy of a new idea, just a word can turn a human being into shit. Different words in different eras, race words and class words in the past, now sex words. Although perhaps today it's all of the above. Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. But there was a brief moment when sex words had the kind of uh, ascendancy there uh, as, as the most kind of radioactive. In the memoir, you come to see Nasreen, you write, not as an event or a moment, but a condition. What condition is Nasreen? Because uh, you, you clearly want to hold her responsible for her conduct. You're not willing to see her as simply criminally insane. At other times, you seem to wonder whether you might be responsible in some way, whether a failing on your part has left you vulnerable to her siege, which begs the question, is, is, is Nasreen a condition from which you suffered, or, or is she the condition? Well, I don't know that I did answer or could answer that, um, but I definitely was ex interested in exploring you know, the degrees to which it, this was a subjective phenomenon that someone else might have experienced in a completely different way. And the degree to which it was, you know, it, this was how it was objectively. It was, it was warfare. Uh, it was some kind of evil. Very, very early in, in that experience, and I've talked to other people who've been through similar kinds of experiences. When, when you're not in control of something that is happening to you, that someone else is visiting upon you, your sense of the sort of rationality of it. I felt under a, under a curse. I mean, every day some new terrible thing would sort of happen. There'd be some new she kept dreaming up new ways of, of tormenting me and i couldn't do anything to stop it i couldn't understand it i just experienced it i experienced it in a very inward way i guess i internalized it and to the point where it took almost nothing to set me off i mean i would just to see her name on an email or something like that would kind of unleash a storm of emotions I wanted to subtitle the book not on being stalked, but notes on a crisis, because to me it was it was applicable to all kinds of crises, like a div bad divorce or anything like that, and that that was what was kind of interesting about it that it that it had a sort of resonance beyond the very specific weirdness of being someone. Right, and your and your book evolves in a very unusual and unexpected, and I think quite searching way with this long um, reflection on on anti-Semitism in, in the internet age, because Nasreen's campaign against you assumed a very anti-Semitic tone. More than tone, I mean, it was yeah, it was very explicitly it was explicit. anti-Semitic, and uh, yeah kind of high-velocity, anti-Semitic <laughs> fusillades. Yeah, so everything that she brought up, I, I wanted to deal with in that book and really explore. Ever since I arrived in, in America, I'd been getting interested in, in that aspect of my kind of family history of being Jewish, uh, what it was to be Jewish when we had absolutely no kind of Jewish culture, and yet in some weird way identified as Jews, and my father certainly did. You know, that, that got kind of reframed when I arrived in New York and for whatever reason, ended up hanging out mostly with the Jews who had a very different attitude to it than the people I'd grown up with in England and made me see it in a different way, uh, made me conscious of it and made me sort of interested in it as a, as a sort of cultural legacy that wasn't necessarily limited by kind of religious things and that might be actually more interesting. Anyway, I was sort of interested in, the, in that, that whole subject and I'd approached it in various ways in poetry and fiction, but I had never really been subjected to a lot of heavy anti-Semitism. And there's nothing like that to make you feel Jewish. Um, it's, it, it, it's this thing that many people have said that actually it's other people who define whether you are a Jew or not. Well, that would be that would be the, uh, the Sartre position that a Jew is someone who is perceived to be a Jew. Absolutely. And that and that and being perceived and being attacked for it made me feel it in a way that I never I don't think I ever had before. Not even in the Anglican church when people looked at you and your family and said, hmm, they don't look like they belong here. No, I think I was too sort of 
bewildered at that age to really make sense of it. But it kind of resonated with that experience. But I think what's really interesting about this experience, aside from the obvious agony that it caused you, is that it led to what seems to me a kind of transformation of your writing from more private dramas to dramas where the boundary between the private and the public has become dangerously and frighteningly porous, where, and where paranoia is a very strong element, maybe a justified element. And in a sense, I think you've become a more explicitly political writer, not to say a didactic writer. Would you say that's fair? I, I hope so. I hope so. I, was, I always wanted to be able to kind of write politics into the stories that I'm interested in telling. But I'm very wary of, of just kind of superimposing some kind of political structure on a narrative or something like that, just because I happen to be interested in some set of ideas. That experience certainly kind of, yeah, made me sort of feel politics on my own nerves or like, you know, social codes, political codes, race codes, all those things, sexual codes. I mean, all those things. They blew up in your face. They, yeah, they did. They became, and they became available to me as material as a result. Uh, I, I, I felt absolutely able to address them in a way that I don't think I ever had quite before. I mean, interestingly, the first novel that emerges out of your crisis, your, the Nasserine condition, is a thriller, a thrillerish book, The Fall Guy. And it's probably the closest you've come to writing genre fiction. But it's also a book about social class, about envy, resentment, and the murderousness they can inspire. And, it's t and it takes place just after the financial crisis. Yeah. One of the characters is a, is a banker. I was interested in that. I was interested in trying to find a way of, of writing about that. It's not very overtly about the banking crisis or anything like that, but it's there, that's there. But you have these two cousins, and one of them is a banker, and the other is an aspiring chef, and the banker lives at a much higher level than, the, than this chef, and the chef rather envies his marriage and envies his life. Yeah, absolutely. And even, and even his cooking seems like an attempt at rising uh, socially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's about envy in many ways, and he's he's also interested in the guy's wife. The title, of course, of your previous book had been Give Me Everything You Have. Right, yes. And that's kind of what Charlie wants from Matthew. Matthew from Charlie, yeah. Matthew from Charlie, I mean. Yes, that's right. And he feels entitled to it, and, and there's some grounds for him thinking that. writer who clearly spoke to you with particular force while you were going through this ordeal was Patricia Highsmith. Maybe you could talk a bit about why Patricia Highsmith and her novel, The Talented Mr. Ripley, spoke to you um, as forcefully as they did. Yeah, on the sort of most basic level, they're just it's just effortlessly readable. And I, I was having trouble concentrating on anything that required any kind of effort at all. And so to read a book like that or Strangers on a Train, it's like you're just sliding into it with this sort of frictionless ease. And she's an extraordinary writer. I mean, she's so sort of invisible almost. The stories just seem to happen in the way that, it, like movies in front of you are sort of in her eye. She's not a showy writer, but she's just knows exactly what she wants to do with her characters. and Which is kind of amazing when you think of how perverse and twisted her material is and yet you read her and you totally buy it yeah well yeah i mean it didn't seem that perverse or twisted to me while i was in that particular state so it might have felt like it was sort of i was very on the wavelength of these books that are about i mean strangers on a train has which i quote a lot of in this give me everything you have has, has a whole stalking story in it, and a lot of the stalking in that was weirdly 
similar to what I was going through. A lot of the relationship between the stalker and the stalkee was uncannily like what, what I was... Right, because the stalker in, in Highsmith and, and in Hitchcock wants to create a sense of complicity with the stalkee. Yeah. Which is what Nasreen was trying to do with you. Yeah. And the stalky feels a sense of strange kind of... that He feels implicated in this guy's weird kind of plot to, that they swap murders. And even though his life is destroyed by his stalker, by, by Bruno, this psychopath, he kind of feels compassion for him and, and even forgives him at the end, sort of. Yeah, so it was probably that. I love the talented Mr. Ripley for all kinds of reasons. And I wanted to write a thriller about a kind of loser character or somebody who embarks on on his sort of journey as a bit of a loser as as a sort of not a kind of alpha type not a kind of evil genius but someone who also has a great capacity for enjoying life what i think is great about the highsmith is that ripley grows as a character as he pursues his murderous path as he takes over the identity of his victim and the money and all the rest of it he instead of becoming a kind of tormented dostoevsky and guilt-wracked raskolnikov he actually grows as a character and you feel this very perverse sense that yeah he deserves that life more than the guy he stole it from he even has some sequels ahead of him because highsmith continued writing about right and he's this guy who gets away with it and you want him to get away with it and i sort of wanted to be able to do that with my character but actually i couldn't do that in the end i couldn't make it work as a story about a guy who who gets away with with murder but i don't really know why but it just didn't seem to naturally go that way but in your next novel afternoon of a fawn we have a character named marco filmmaker who does get away with what seems to have been a crime it's unclear whether he committed it it's about uh, rape committed against uh a woman named Julia, who had been an object of desire for the narrator when he was a younger man. And this novel takes place against the backdrop of the rise of Donald Trump, the man who boasted of grabbing women's pussies during the, the, his campaign and still got elected. Did you see this at the time as your way of responding to the mood around Me Too? Well, I began writing it in 2016 and i was just finishing it when when the harvey weinstein business broke and me too took off so it wasn't it wasn't strictly me too related but it was obviously i mean one kind of forgets this now but in the years before me too there was a succession of high profile cases of men in media and business and whatever being accused of historic sexual misconduct, rape, assault, all these crimes. I was very interested in all those cases, and I was very interested in the whole phenomenon of how they played out in the media and how they were kind of uh, changing the way people looked at sort of relations between the sexes. I thought, I totally misjudged it. I thought that they were kind of, they seemed to be coming faster and faster and faster. And I thought that they were going to reach a point and then it was going to be over. And that was going to be that phase of the culture finished. And I thought I was writing the lot. I mean, because this was not the first book about an accusation of rape or whatever. Um, there'd been plays, there'd been films. I thought it might be the last, though. Going back to plays like David Mamet's Oleana. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, and I'd written, even in, in my first novel, The Horned Man, there are it touches on some of those themes so but i thought i thought it was just gonna gonna go away and i but i wanted to write a book that really dealt with it kind of head on and then of course me too broke and it everyone realized actually it's just the preamble to me too and i remember and i remember you being a little worried at the time that the novel would be received negatively well, i was concerned about publishing a novel that you know attempts to sort of explore ambiguity and nuance and uncertainty to publish a book that does that into a revolutionary moment like Me Too, because I really do think it was like a revolution, Me Too. Uh, for all kinds of reasons, I was I was nervous about it. Although it was read in, in wildly different ways. In fact, one reviewer who, who sang the praises of, of the novel, a feminist critic in, in The New Republic, concluded pretty definitively that the that Marco was guilty, although the, in the novel it's not entirely clear. Well, it, no, it's, it's not crystal clear, because it's also, 
you know, it's a story of a historic accusation that comes from over 30 years ago. So what that gives you in terms of creating the narrative is this moving time frame. So you can look at the same event through different moments of historical evolution, and it takes on a different meaning through different lenses. And so what is seen as one thing at one time is seen as a different thing in a different time. And I wanted to use that to some to some extent as a way of informing how the reader is going to look at what, whatever it is that Marco did in that hotel room. So I think it is somewhat open to interpretation, but at the same time, I hope it's not evasively ambiguous. Well, I think the fate of the woman in question suggests fairly strongly that something did happen. Well, clearly, yes. Yeah. While I was rereading The Siege, I came upon the striking passage in which you describe feelings as like a physicist's massless particles, ceasing to exist when not in motion, devoid of any intrinsic qualities, their secondary effects are nonetheless momentous and ineluctable. To me, that sounds like a, a very good description of what you do in your work to render the feelings or the, the movement of these pervasive and yet elusive feelings intelligible. Do you, do you feel that's what you're doing on the page? Uh, I hope so. I, I, I'd like to think that that's what I'm doing. Uh, I, I'm interested in how things feel. I mean, I think that that's what what most novelists and people who write poetry are. Uh, I, I mean, you are you're interested in in ideas. One is interested in you know psychology and all those things, but it's always in the service of kind of creating and delivering an emotional experience, creating it for yourself and delivering it for a reader. I think, you know, unless you're doing that, you're not really writing fiction or not the kind of fiction that I'm interested in. I mean, to me, emotional, the, the emotional layer is a very prime, primal one. But if an idea seizes me, I, I always want to know, well, how does it actually feel to be possessed by that idea rather than just working out intellectually what are the ramifications of that idea, if that makes any sense. It does. And I, you know, I, I wonder, though, you know, whether the idea of writing of novel writing as being in some way comparable to music and it in its exploration of um, of experience of feeling of the of, you know realms of emotion that are in some ways clandestine of you know what some critics would call the unsayable I, I wonder whether that idea has fallen out of favor and has even in some quarters become suspect you know with this call to write political, even agitprop fiction to align one's writing with certain political or social movements. Um, I mean, we see this, for example, in some of the pronouncements of people like uh, the novelist Viet Tan Yuan. Is that a, a concern of yours, that somehow we're losing our understanding of what it is the novel can do that other kinds of writing can't do? I, I would share that kind of wariness to a degree myself. I mean, I think writing that, you know, really does aspire to the condition of music is going to be very precious and wouldn't be my kind of thing. Uh, I just, to me, it's just, that's a part of it. It's not the whole thing. I mean, the great thing about the novel is it's an incredibly sort of all-encompassing thing. It can, it can be so many different things. It can be approached in so many different ways. And one thing doesn't kind of eliminate another. I mean, one type of novel doesn't make another it's not like science you don't get sort of superannuated it doesn't sort of replace itself in that way it just kind of accumulates so yeah i mean i think we're in a moment now where if you were like a young novelist certainly starting out i'm sure you you would really want to kind of get this political moment down do you think there's a place for a novel a contemporary novel like the golden notebook which is it one and the same time, a work of introspection and a work of political engagement? I think any time is good for a, for a great novel, and that's a great novel. And I think that would, people would be receptive to it. I, I mean, I think there are times when a certain kind of a certain kind of novel doesn't have to be great in order to be interesting, just because it captures the zeitgeist or, or it does it performs some kind of role in the culture that people want to see. It, it sort of endorses a certain kind of journey let's say but then you have a novel like conversations with friends which whether it's 
greater not certainly captures an experience that a lot of people can identify with it does it does it beautifully and it has it's 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 very emotionally alive as well as intellectually alive and socially alive and it, it has something new to offer i mean it's a, it's a new generation it's a it's these new sort of sexual configurations that hadn't been I'd never seen quite that configuration before of characters and their sexual affiliations done with such wit and such kind of knowledge and such uh, depth. Uh, I thought it was a fantastic novel. But, you know, before it had been written, I don't think anyone would have said, what we need now is this book with these characters and everybody will go crazy about it. I mean, that's the thing about fiction. It's, it's a sort of comes... It's a gift that no one asked for. Yeah. It's, it's, th th there is a sort of illusion that it develops a bit like science, but it really doesn't. We talked earlier in the conversation, James, about something that you shared with your dad, the sense of being embattled. And, you know, I've, I've stayed at your place. I've seen you go downstairs into the dungeon, to this place where you create your work. And, you know, there are good days and there are days that are, that are harder, as in any writer's life. And you write at one point, it's a recurrent anxiety of mine, this fear of irrelevance. And I have no arguments against it other than the fact, hardly an argument, that sometimes the urge to write these very private things is stronger than the doubts about whether they are worth writing. Do you think that that battle is essential to your creative process? I think I'm always going to have doubts about the validity of what I'm doing. And there always has to be some urge that is to, to go on doing them that's stronger than the doubt. I think that that might express what I like in the books that I do like, the sense that whoever has written them has, has overcome a lot of doubt about the validity and has questioned it and has really kind of asked themselves if it's worth writing and has maybe struggled with, with that question and yet has produced something. I like that pressure of negation against the thing that is created. I think it gives it, um, it, gives it a kind of presence and it gives it a certain sort of solidity if, if you take that into account, if it's somehow written in. I mean, I know biographically that a lot of the writers that I really admire have gone through that kind of process. Kafka in the most extreme way, of course, but even even writers who one thinks of it, people to whom it came, it came very easily, like somebody like Tolstoy. Actually, if you read the you know if you read the biography, I mean, it, it was a lot of struggle, a lot of questioning about whether he was doing anything that sort of had any meaning, and a lot of change of direction in mid mid flow. I mean book like Anna Karenin began as something completely different from what it turned into. Well, I think, James, it's that quality of struggle that gives your writing its power. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank, you. thank you for joining me on this, on this episode. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to James Lasden on Myself with Others, a podcast by Adam Schatz. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. This episode is co-presented by the London Review of Books. Thank you to ECM Records for lending musical selections of Schubert, performed by Andras Schiff, to this episode. The theme to Myself with Others is composed and performed by Richard Sears. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe. <laughs>